0: So Mark 8, 1 to 21. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where, is this remote place? But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember... When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Johnny's going to come and um, explain that to us.
1: morning, everyone. If you just keep that open, I'm going to be referring to that throughout. Oh, thanks. Yeah, nice one. (coughs) So keep that passage open. Um, We'll be looking at that throughout. So... Uh, it's lovely to see you all. It's nice um, also to be able to sing that Christmas song. Praise God for December, it's here. Uh, but before we kind of kick off our uh, talks and events and that kind of thing, we're going to finish off uh, today and next week uh, the, the first half of the book of Mark. Now, if you've, if you've been with us over the course of, of this term, uh, you'll remember Johnny preaching a few weeks ago on Jesus' miracle when he fed the 5,000 <clears> with only a few loaves and fishes. And even if you weren't here, you probably are quite familiar with the feeding of The five thousand is quite a a famous miracle. Um, and, and you know, you, you might have been sat there being like, I swear, I swear I've heard this before. I swear, you know, this is, isn't this the same kind of thing? And then you would have kind of hit verse nine and it would have been like, okay, so, um, it says Jesus fed four thousand people. So clearly there's a different miracle going on here. Um, or at least it's the same miracle kind of done again. So let me ask the kind of blindingly obvious question as we start. Why does Jesus do the same sign again? Remember the Bible doesn't call them miracles, they it calls them signs because they're not like party tricks. They're like they're, they're signs pointing to Jesus' identity, to, to, to who he is. And and the sign at least I thought was pretty clear from the feeding of the five thousands, that as a shepherd feeds his flock, Jesus feeds us the food of eternal life, which satisfies our deepest longings, it satisfies our souls the sign was clear. So why does he do the same thing again? I mean, you know, there are differences. You know, the fact that there were 4,000 people there instead of 5,000 people, and, uh, you know, he had seven loads instead of five. You know, the, some of the details were different, but essentially this is the same sign. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, driving into Birmingham past a big welcome to Birmingham sign, and then like five yards later there's another sign saying welcome to Birmingham. It's kind of, okay. Um, it could a bit like that. So, why did why did Jesus do it again? What is his point? I think to answer that, we we'll, we'll just walk through the text together. So, do have that open um, as as uh, yeah, and and we'll see the answer kind of emerge over a few verses. So, verse one. Look at that. During those days, another large crowd gathered. So this is talking about another one because the first one was the five thousand. Okay, so essentially the same situation is going on here. And in verse 2 and verse 3, Jesus says, I've compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Almost identical words to what he says when he's about to feed the 5,000 people. So you're getting the, you're getting the feeling here that this is the same thing. And, you know, when this happened before, how did the disciples respond? When well, they kind of like understandably turn to Jesus, eyebrows raised, asking him, well, how on earth are we going to feed 5,000 people? And so then obviously Jesus did the sign, he did the miracle. And so this time at the feeding of the 4,000, the disciples, they've got it, right? They saw the signs, they know it's Jesus who's going to come and feed these 4,000 people. They know that he's the bread of life. That was a sign. They know that he is the son of God. That's the point. They get it. But they don't. Look at verse four. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? And oh, do you see what's going on here? The disciples had forgotten the sign already. Imagine going past that welcome to Birmingham sign being like, oh cool, we're, we're nearly home. So where are we? That's, that's kind of, that's kind of what's going on here. They saw the sign that Jesus feeds his flock with food that satisfies, and now they're asking where they're going to get enough bread to feed these 4,000 people. So why did Jesus do the same thing again? Well, because he's so patient, isn't he? He's so gracious. He's so kind with his followers. He knows how quick they are to forget what he teaches them. And he knows that they've forgotten the sign already. And so he does it again. The exact same sign. Verse 6, have a look. Jesus tells the crowd to sit down. He breaks the seven loaves, distributes them. Exactly the same. And what happens? Again, the same as the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 8, key verse. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Jesus gives the same sign. He is the bread of heaven. He is our earthly and eternal satisfaction. So now they've got it, twice over, they've got it, they go on their merry way, verse 13, they cross the other side of the lake, and it's here you get the idea of just how forgetful these guys are. Twice now, they've been caught short with no bread to feed themselves and others, and now have a look what's going down in verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, (laughs) except for one loaf that they bought in them, in the boat, now, Jesus is sat there, like, head in hands, like, who are these guys? You know, he's done the same thing twice. And, you know, these dudes are sitting in the boat being like, you know, we don't have any bread. <laughs> Where are we going to get bread from? So Jesus needs to drop the whole miracle thing. He drops the sign and he starts teaching them verbally the same lesson that the t- sign taught them. He just tells them plainly. Only the way he does so is that he gives the negative side of the same truth. Do you know what I mean by that? So instead of saying, I am the eternal food that satisfies your soul, he says, here's the food that's not going to satisfy you. Make sense? That's the kind of negative side of the of the same truth. And this is what he says, verse 15. Here's him speaking plainly. Okay, He says, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And the disciples then awkwardly nod, kind of with the same confused look as many of you are giving me now. And they're like, ah, thanks, yeah, cool, we get it now. What's he talking about? I don't know. It's like that kind of thing that's going on in the boat, like that kind of awkward shuffling. Verse 16, they discussed this with one another and said, oh, it's because we have no bread. They're like, ah, oh, yeast of the Pharisees, yeast, oh, bread, yeast. No, I still don't get it. That's that—that's the kind of thing that's that's happening. And at this point, Jesus has demonstrated that he's he's the eternal and earthy satisfaction of their souls. He's demonstrated it again by graciously repeating the sign. And now he's told them about what it looks like to miss the sign and go after food that can't satisfy, i.e. the yeast of the Pharisees. And these guys are still looking at him and each other with no idea what's going on. So Jesus' reaction comes with, Absolutely no surprise. Verse 17. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, look, look, look at it with me. Verse 17. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many basketful pieces did you pick up? Kind of awkwardly say, 12? And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he, he looks at them straight in the eyes. In verse 21, he said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? I mean, do you? Do you understand this morning? Have you understood the sign, indeed the signs, that Jesus has done over the course of Mark's gospel so far? Ask yourself, over the last few weeks as we've gone through this gospel, have you seen Jesus' power over our bodies and so no longer feel any health anxiety? Have you seen his power over everything in creation and found all of your fears and anxieties just slip away? Have you seen his claim to be God and seen your worship of him completely transformed? Have you seen how he is the bread of life and therefore given up looking for ultimate satisfaction in other things? Your circumstances, your bank account, your job, your relational status, your life. Well, if you're anything like me, absolutely not. No, you haven't understood. Jesus' question to us is the same. Why are you guys still so afraid? Why are you so worried? Why are you still talking about being unfulfilled or at least living, like chasing things that aren't going to fulfill you, showing that you're not fulfilled? Do you still not understand? You see, we might look at these guys and think, you know what, these guys are slow, aren't they? They are so slow. And then we leave the building and get back to our lives completely unchanged by Jesus. Here's the point. We are the disciples. We are the followers in this story. We are slow to understand. We don't get it. We need things repeated time and time again. And if you're a note taker, this is like the essence of, of this passage. This is the good news of the passage. That Jesus graciously feeds his forgetful disciples again and again and again and again. And you know what? He's going to do exactly that same thing here this morning. He's going to remind us what we've heard before, and yet we, what we've already forgotten, probably. And this is how he reminds us. Again, at verse 15, he gives us this caution. And the caution is this. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Don't miss the sign. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. He's saying to us, "If you're careful to avoid the Pharisees' beliefs and heart attitudes, you won't forget that I satisfy you completely." The Pharisees are those religious leaders. I don't know if you've been, you know, if, if, if you come across them before. They're these religious leaders who effectively spend Jesus' whole earthly ministry opposing Jesus and opposing his message. And Jesus is like, "Be careful that you don't approach me like them." That's his greatest reminder to us this morning of the gospel, and we'll see how that works. I guess the question is, how did the Pharisees approach Jesus? Well, I think we see three of their attitudes in our passage, and we should watch out for all of them. So firstly, the Pharisees approach Jesus with an attitude that argues with him. They argue, Jesus can't be a satisfaction if we're arguing with him. Secondly, Jesus, um, uh, the Pharisees had an attitude which demands more signs. Again, we can't be satisfied with Jesus if we're saying, you know what, Jesus, I, I need more from you. And thirdly, the Pharisees have an attitude which want to earn their own salvation. Again, we can't be satisfied with Jesus whilst trying to impress God. Okay, so we're going to look at each of those in turn. So, so firstly, Jesus says, watch out for the use of the Pharisees. Watch out for an attitude which argues with him. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. That's the only bit for now. So there's nothing wrong, I just want to make this clear, there's nothing wrong with humbly asking questions about Jesus, asking about what his message is and, and, and what the gospel is. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But in the original language, the word isn't so much question and more argue with. So the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus. And, you know, we see this throughout the gospels, don't we? The Pharisees come and start these, like, long debates, (laughs) theological debates with the Son of God. I mean, folly, if there isn't, you know, uh, it's mad. But anyway, we see these kind of gospel, um, we see these debates happening in in John's gospel. You can't really see them in in Mark. But they come and argue with Jesus. And and the yeast of the Pharisees, therefore, is an, is an, an attitude which argues with Jesus. And it's really obvious, isn't it, why these Pharisee guys, why they don't like Jesus very much. I mean, it was only over the page. I don't know if you've got it open in chapter seven, verse 20. Have a look at that. This is what Jesus says and he's, what he's been saying for ages. We saw it last week. He says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. <laughs> now, if, if you're feeling very proud about how morally amazing you are, And you got this dude from Galilee coming along being like, you know what, guys, you're a sexually immoral, adulterer, greedy, malicious, lewd, envious, foolish, arrogant, thief, liar, and a murderer, whether in your thought or in your heart or in both. That's not going to go down too well. So instead of hearing and believing the bad news about their souls from the one who's proven himself to be God and the one who indeed can forgive them of that sin, they completely miss out miss out on being satisfied by Jesus by arguing with him they reject the opportunity to listen to Jesus' clear word they miss the true bread of life because of their own yeast their attitude which argues with him but let's remember and this is really important Jesus here isn't actually talking to the Pharisees he's talking to his followers he's talking to people like us Okay, people who are actually following, not who are rejecting him, and, and and he's saying to us, "Beware the yeast of the Pharisees." He's saying, "Guys, beware of your heart, which argues with me." I wonder if you argue with what Jesus clearly says. When I read out that list about what Jesus said, our hearts are like, are we? If we're absolutely honest, is there not a small part of us which is just like, "Ah, come on, I'm not that bad." Or what about the things that, that Jesus says but which our culture absolutely despises? You know, Jesus speaks very clearly about things like materialism, sexual ethics, our love of money and possessions, our understanding of gender, our individualism, our concern for number one. And you know what? We have to decide, am I going to argue with Jesus or take him at his word? If this doesn't mean not asking questions but it does mean assuming that it's us who need to, to, to learn from him rather than expecting that he's going to conform to our views. It's us who, without him, need satisfaction for our empty hearts. And it's him who gives it to us. So we need to listen to him, don't we? Well, here's something to think about. You may, you may be thinking, you know, I do actually listen to Jesus. I do listen to Jesus. But the stuff in the rest of the Old Testament, or even in the New Testament from that guy, Peter or Paul, well, I didn't really need to listen to that because, well, you know, that's not really Jesus. I listen, I listen to Jesus. You know, we, we kind of think it's normal that our Bible should have red letters showing us the direct speech of Jesus. That's something that we're so used to now. Now, if you have one of those, please don't think I'm judging you because I tried to buy a Bible not so long ago and it's so difficult to buy one without red letters. But does, do you see what that's communicating? It's saying, here, that the actual speech of Jesus, that's, that's the really important stuff. That's in red. So listen to that. And the other stuff, you know, take it or leave it. But Jesus says that by doing that, you are arguing, not with the writers of the Old Testament, not with Peter or Paul, but you're arguing with him and you're arguing with God the Father. You don't have to go there, but if you were to turn to Luke twenty-four, verse forty-six, you'd read in red letters, incidentally, um, that, that Jesus, um, that Jesus, saying that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to, is about Him, and He affirms it. Or you could you could turn to Luke ten, sixteen, where Jesus turns to His apostles, those people who are going to write the New Testament, and He says this: He says, "Whoever listens to you, apostles, listens to Me. Whoever rejects you, apostles, rejects Me." And whoever rejects me rejects the, the Father. So this is pretty serious. Like, not if you have a red Bible. Don't, don't, don't ditch your red Bible. That's not the point. It's about the attitude behind the red, the red letters. But that's such a challenge to us, isn't it? That we that we are to listen and not argue with all of God's words. You know, go over the red bits with a black pen. Or the Black bits with a red pen, that'll take you longer. But in any case, it just there's no difference between the red and the black. That's such a challenge. Don't we find ourselves accepting some of what Jesus says and arguing with him on other bits, either in actual debates or just the things that we fail to emphasize or live out in our lives? That's Jesus' caution. The important thing is that he's stating the sign negatively. Don't miss the sign. Watch out for the use of the Pharisees, which argues with me. That will leave you empty. Okay, but, but remember the sign, the positive side of the same coin. There's such satisfaction and freedom and joy in submitting to Jesus Christ and what he says about our lives in a messed up and fallen world. It's so freeing to be like, well, I don't know, my views is just what Jesus says. Oh, he says that? Yeah, all right, I need to think about that. But yeah, that's, that's my view. Jesus isn't saying, beware of the, the, the yeast of the Pharisees who argue with me. He's saying, come and feast on the freedom and joy and satisfaction that I give you. I am the bread of life. Listening to, to Jesus rather than argue with him satisfies our souls. And that is such good news. So that's the first one. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. An attitude that argues with Jesus. Second one, an attitude that demands more sign. How, More signs, excuse me. Have a look again at verses 11 and on to 12. So the Pharisees came and began to question, uh, argue with Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Right, question. (laughs) Why do you think Jesus sighed deeply? (laughs) I love that little detail. Does anyone see the irony of what's going on here? Here the Pharisees are, and they're asking Jesus for a sign from heaven. They've just seen, you know, his power over the natural and supernatural world. Healings, calming of storms, feeding 5,000, now feeding 4,000. That's 9,000 people. And here they are, asking for a sign. He sighed deeply. <laughs> There's an important lesson here, isn't there? You know, if, if, if you ever tried to, to tell anyone about Jesus and convince them that he is who he says it is, you, this is a lesson that you'll, you'll have already learned. And it's this, that no matter how impressive your arguments, your signs, so to speak, you know, no matter how historically valid your case for Jesus' miracles, his death and resurrection, it will make precious little difference if that person's hardened their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says elsewhere about us being convinced or not that he is who he claims to be. Jesus says, the famous parable of Lazarus, you might know it, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Old Testament incidentally, side point, they will not be convinced even if someone is raised from the dead. You're like, what? Really? This is exactly what happens with these Pharisees, isn't it? The Pharisees spend their whole Whole of Jesus' ministry trying to put him to death under God's sovereign plan. They eventually manage it, and then three days later he rises from the dead. And you think at this point they'd be like, "Hands up, you were right. I submit to you. You are God." But that's not what happened, is it? No, they they get together and they start conspiring. How can we how can we cover this up? Madness. But the point is this: if you demand a sign, given all of the signs that Jesus has already performed. Even the most convincing sign won't convince you. Or as Jesus says, no sign will be given. But again, important to realize Jesus isn't talking to the Pharisees here. This isn't one of his debates with the Pharisees. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to them. He's talking to us. Now you might think that asking for a sign isn't really something that we Christians do. But there's a really subtle way, I think, at least in my own heart, that we do do this. You see, every time we doubt God's goodness, his love, his grace, his promises, we're effectively saying, God, what you've revealed in Jesus and in your words, it's just not not enough. And our default is to think that instead of revealing those truths to us in Christ and in his word, that God reveals his goodness, love and grace and promises to us in our circumstances. That's just our default, isn't it? And that's why... during times of pain and suffering, that we're most likely to, whether we realize it or not, demand a sign from God. Another one. <clears throat> a lot of you will know that, <clears throat> that just over two months ago, my daughter Edith died very suddenly in, in Jana's womb at 35 weeks old. Twelve hours before she died, she was perfectly fine. Midwife scanned her, Perfect. And then 12 hours later, she died. Now, the day before she died, <clears throat> I wasn't doubting God's love or grace. But the moment suffering comes, we face a barrage of questions about God, don't we? Is he good? Does he care? How could he let this happen? And we forget what the Bible says about us. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves asking, you know, is, is God angry at me? Did I deserve this? You see, none of that was a battle for for. I was going to say me and Joanna, but I can only speak for myself. You can speak on behalf of yourself. But it wasn't a, a, a battle for, for me before Edith died. And that's, that's so normal, isn't it? But here's the positive side. That's, this is the negative side. So, like, beware the use of the Pharisees and actually that demands more sign. But here's the, the gloriously positive side of that same truth. Look, looking to our circumstances to prove God's love and grace isn't going to be food that satisfies you. But the good news is that for all those wishing that God would change their circumstances, would prove his love, would show that he cares, take hold of the sign. Take hold of the comfort of knowing that in Jesus, God has made public his love for you. We don't need to doubt that Jesus is our satisfaction. Look, here he is. He's shown it to us by feeding the 4,000, having it written down for us. We don't need to doubt God's love for us. He came to this earth in the person of Christ, and who died to bring us back to to Him. What a sign that is! How much He loves us. We don't need to ask ourselves whether God's angry at us when suffering comes. Jesus took on Himself on the cross all of God's anger. There's none left for you. See, we don't need more signs. All the signs have been given. He's communicating his love, grace and goodness, not in our circumstances, but in our salvation. Jesus says, beware the use of the Pharisees who demand a sign. No sign will be given because God has satisfied everything we long for in Jesus Christ. That's the second one. Beware an attitude that demands more signs. Thirdly, and finally, beware, watch out for an attitude that wants to earn salvation. Now, I won't lie. I'm unashamedly cheating with this one because there's a lot actually in our passage, but it's all over the Gospels, all over the Gospels. If there's one underlying heart, belief and attitude of the Pharisees, the one that meant that they argued with Jesus and demanded more signs, it is this. That they believed they could earn their own salvation. This is why they hated Jesus. Wouldn't you, if you thought you were a cut above the rest, and this guy rocks up saying, you know what, you have it absolutely wrong. You can only be saved by falling broken, sinful, and humble at my feet. Wouldn't you hate that guy if you thought you were a cut above the rest? Just look, just glance back at chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. We saw this last week. Again, this is just one place among like a million across the go- Gospels. But chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law, is the guys we're speaking about, Ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now, let's just cut through the chit-chat, right? The Pharisees aren't asking an honest question. Ooh, Jesus, let's start a theological discussion. They're not doing that at all. What they're saying is, hey, look at how religiously unclean your disciples are compared to us. You see, we shouldn't be fooled. Religious people really can't stand Jesus, they might, they might like church, they might like hymns, and they, they might like the rituals, they might talk about Christian morality. They, you know, they, they, they may even know that their Bible's back to front, but religiously proud people do that in order to impress God and to impress others. And you know what? As we saw last week, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work with God. It doesn't work for one really simple reason, because you actually become more sinful. It just adds to your sin. You become self-righteous. Looking down on other people who don't quite meet your religious standards. So in chapter 7, again, Jesus has told us that whether in thought, deed, or likely both in some cases, we're sexually immoral, adulterating, greedy, envious, foolish, arrogant, thieves, murderers, and liars. And then, for the proud religious people, add something onto the list. You're self-righteous. Well, that's not really helping, is it? It's making it worse. But you might be sat there thinking, actually, I have the exact opposite problem I am not. I'm, I don't think I'm particularly spiritually impressive. I actually think that everyone else is much more spiritually impressive than me. I'm somehow a lesser Christian. But if you're sat there thinking either that God must be pretty impressed by you, or if you're sat there thinking that God could never accept you, or couldn't love you, first just let me say welcome to the club. Everyone flip-flops between this side, these two sides of the spectrum across their lives. But let me also sensitively say that both ways of thinking measures our status before God on the basis of our own performance. Whether an impressive spiritual CV or a spiritual CV that has sin after sin after sin after guilt, after guilt after guilt after guilt after shame after shame after shame. It's exactly the same. We're looking to ourselves and making a decision about how, how much God should love me. So watch out for looking to yourself to earn God's approval. That's the negative side. But the good news that Jesus wants us to remember is that we should be encouraged. Remember Jesus' feeding of the 4,000 people. He is your satisfaction. Not only your satisfaction in your circumstances, he's the satisfaction of your sins. We can't perform and be accepted by God, but Jesus has done everything to earn your salvation on your behalf. Isn't that satisfying? This both rids us of our pride and it lifts us from our self-loathing. It does work, contrary to the being really religious. Beware the use of the Pharisees who look to themselves to find salvation. Look to Christ. He gives it freely and it's satisfying. Verse 8, the people ate and were satisfied. Remember the sign. Don't go hungry measuring your own righteousness. Feast on Jesus resting in his righteousness alone okay so as we close you may be telling yourself okay i've got it i've got it kind of don't argue with jesus don't demand more signs make sure i trust in jesus for salvation i've got it done i'll go home but you know what that's exactly what the disciples said after the feeding of the five i i've got it i've got the sign and you know what they forgot it straight away and jesus had to do the sign again after the feeding of the 4,000, they cross the lake, they're like, who do I got any bread? Like, they forgot it already. So the point of the passage here, guys, isn't to convince ourselves that this time we've got it. That this time we won't forget the sign about how Jesus is our earthly and eternal satisfaction. The passage actually does much more than that. And it gives us both good and bad news. I think the bad news is fairly obvious, isn't it? The bad news is that tomorrow... Tomorrow morning, you and I will probably have forgotten that Jesus is our only satisfaction. And we'll be taking on the yeast of the Pharisees all over the shop, measuring up about how much God must or must not love me on the basis of what I've done or what I've failed to do. Or do you know what, I should have said that, or oh, my word just sinned in this way, or I haven't read my Bible, or yeast of the Pharisees. But here's the good news, that in his love and grace... Jesus feeds us forgetful disciples, forgetful followers again and again and again with the good news of the gospel. He repeats the sign to us as he did to his followers when he was walking around Galilee. You know, Jesus reminds them by walking. Well, Jesus reminds everyone, doesn't he? Well, all of his followers by walking with them day in and day out in our passage He did that physically. He was walking with them. He repeated the sign physically. He was there to warn his followers again and again of forgetting the sign and being like the Pharisees. And while Jesus is no longer with us physically, he gives his followers the Holy Spirit, through whom he reminds us of what we forget. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? How does Jesus use the Holy Spirit to remind us of what we so often forget? Well, he reminds us through his word, the Bible. We've seen that today. What a gift we have, and I have, I don't have it in my hands, you have it in your hands. What a gift that we have, that even though I, you know, even though I've forgotten who Jesus is for me by this time tomorrow morning, as my alarm goes off, I can stumble from bed to my Bible where Jesus meets me again and says, here is the gospel, here is the good news, you are saved, it's not down to you. And as he he reminds us through his word, he also reminds us through his people, the church. So as we meet and encourage one another at community group throughout the week and on a Sunday, this is what Jesus is doing. That's why it's so, so important that we listen to the writer of the Hebrews, who says, don't neglect meeting with one another as some are in the habit of doing. Put it at the top of your priority list, because Jesus meets with us. And this is how he he has promised to remind us of the truth of the good news. This is how he's promised to remind us of the truth of our salvation. He reminds us in his word and in his people that we can let go of all of the guilt that we feel over our sin. As he says to us, as he did the paralytic in Mark 2, is it 3? Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. He reminds us in his words and in his people, as he did the Samaritan woman, that whilst we're bored and dissatisfied in a world that has offered us so much and delivered nothing, that the water that he gives will mean that we never thirst again. He reminds us in his words and in his people, as he did the man who was born blind, that despite the pain and ongoing suffering that we feel day in and day out, that this is happening so that the works of God might be displayed in you. He reminds us in his words and in his people that as his hands were splayed and bleeding on the cross, that God's taken away all of your sin and all of your guilt. And even today, he reminds us in his word and in his people, as he did the 9,000 people he fed with only a few loaves and a few fish, that we can come hungry to him and come hungry to his table, as we will do very, very shortly. And we can feast on the bread that he gives us which won't go off. You see, as we take the Lord's Supper, as I say, which we will do this very morning, we are experiencing Jesus' grace to to us, his forgetful followers. He doesn't say, have this meal just once, but as those who constantly forget the gospel, he gives us the sign of bread and wine to remember, to be reminded once again what we've forgotten. That he is the bread of heaven, his body was broken so that we'd feast on him both now, for the rest of our lives, and also into eternity. So I pray? Lord Jesus, you are so gracious and so kind. Father, we are forgetful, broken, sinful, suffering people. And Father, you just give us sign after sign in your word. You give us the church. You give us your word that we can hold. And you remind us. Father, let us not neglect being reminded. Let us spend our lives in your word. Let us spend our weeks meeting with your people as our first priority. Father God, we thank you so much that in Christ this morning, through your word and through your people, You've reminded us that we are forgiven sinners, that you've given us a banquet to look forward to through grace and grace alone. And Father, we pray, knowing that you have already answered this prayer, that you'll keep meeting with us and keep reminding us of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.